Well, I invite you this morning to continue worshiping together in Ephesians now. Let's worship with God's word speaking to us. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're still in this long paragraph about the unity of the gifts and how Christ's gifts unify us as a church. We are one body, but there's a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of people among us that each have spiritual gifting, and that's designed for a purpose, ultimately to bring us all together. Now, we've looked recently at unity. Really, it's a theme for this year since we started in late February in chapter 4 of Ephesians. We had the COVID-19 break and and focused on other topics. We've come back to it. And since chapter 4, verse 1, we've been looking at unity in the church. It's a unity that Christ gives us, but we have to work to maintain it. He gives us a unity amongst the body, but we've got to work with our gifting to maintain that unity. So today we're focused on growing up in Christ. Verse 14 through 16 Growing up in Christ. We looked uh, at 4, 1 through 3. That's individually being unified with one another. How we treat one another in the church especially. 4 through 6, doctrine. What we believe. We're unified around a foundation, a doctrine of beliefs about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then since verse 7, Paul's been teaching us on these gifts. Christ proclaimed a great victory at the cross, and he gave gifts to his church. Some of these gifts are offices that we looked at, particularly today, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that's to build up and equip each individual person in the church so that we can serve and minister one another. And then that helps us all be more mature. So he's going to continue that all the way through verse 16. Let me just read to you 4, 7. Through 16. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to a measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects into Him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. In love. The idea in this passage is growing up. You might remember when you were first a Christian and how everything seemed like it was good and true. You walked into a Christian bookstore like I did as a new believer and you thought, all this is good. It's all true. This book called My Best Life Now or Your Best Life Now, it must be great. I picked that up. I got about halfway through and I realized even as an immature Christian, it had no Bible in it. 
So I set it aside. Maybe you're like me and you would walk in and, and see what we would know today to be false teachers. But you would look at them and see that they're on the front rack. Even in Lifeway Christian Store a few years ago. And, and they're on the front rack. And we know them to be false teachers today. As a new believer, I have to admit, I just took in whatever. Whatever was thrown at me. I was in a church that did not have qualified pastors and teachers. They had pastors, but they weren't teaching. They weren't teaching the Bible. If you didn't have that, by the way, if you, if you got into a good church right away, praise the Lord. Some of you did, and that's amazing. But I spent many years in a church like that. I'll never forget, they had a very dynamic, popular speaker in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. This guy's written many books. He's known around the world for being one of the best, most exciting preachers. And so they had him come into this church where I was at and preach, and I thought, man, this guy is great. Get some of his books. i got to learn more about this guy. Two or three years later, I learned that he didn't even believe in the Trinity, that he didn't think that there was a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's just one God manifesting himself in different ways. We're so easily fooled as baby Christians. And, and Paul's saying here in this text that he wants his readers in, in Ephesus to grow up in the Christian faith. Yeah, there's a time that you're a baby, but it, it shouldn't last long. If you're in a church where they're doing what he's been talking about, Pastors and teachers, equipping the saints so they can serve one another, so the church can be built up. You individually ought to be growing in the faith. We all start out as babies, but we grow up as human beings, don't we? It's the same way in the church. There, there's no other thing we do in life where it's okay to remain immature. If you have a job, it's not likely that you stayed the same as you did that first week or that first month on your job or your career. It's not likely that you learned a skill set and then just remained at a basic level. It's only in Christianity that we think it's okay sometimes to be a baby. The whole Christian walk, our whole lives. Some people are Christians 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Don't you think in that time we ought to be growing? Well, Paul says we should. It's to be expected. So much of Christianity today is not interested in this. I myself was a part of that as a new believer. I spent too many years in this church that I just mentioned. It wasn't until later that God put me in a good church where I learned doctrine, where I learned scripture, where there was a focus on expositional preaching. And it excited me so much that I wanted to go into ministry and, and do that. I was angry at what had happened to me in the past. And God used that to push me forward. There's so much of Christianity not interested in growth, in true Christian growth. But Paul mentions it here. He mentions it really in all of his letters, but specifically by name, he talks about how we should grow up here. What I want you to see, though, in this passage is that God actually desires us, commands us, you might even say, exhorts us to learn from gifted leaders in the church so that we can grow up in the faith. So one of the reasons being a part of a church is so important. We get to grow up in the faith because of what we're receiving from these spiritual gifted offices. And also we could add all the believers working together in the church. That builds us up. That matures us in the faith. In other words, he's saying the purpose of all these offices and all these gifts, everything he's talked about since verse 7, the whole purpose is so that we can all be equipped to serve one another and then build up one another, and then grow up ourselves and grow up as a church. 
So there's really two exhortations in this passage. Two exhortations. Number one, growth in doctrinal stability. Believers are to be grounded. They're to be rooted in the truth of God's word. They cannot continue to be thrown around as a baby Christian every which way. Look at verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children. As a result of what? Of everything that he's just talked about. As a result, particularly of the offices we still have in the church today, pastors, teachers, as a result of the spiritual gifting that we all have, as a result of the church working together to grow, we're no longer to be children. He includes himself because all of us are growing. Even the Apostle Paul had to grow. He is growing. He's not saying that he's a baby Christian, but he's just saying that we all need to grow. And we're no longer to be children. There's a time for being a child in the faith, and that time is over. What does it mean to be a child? This is a a vivid picture that he's going to continue to open up in this verse. Well, what does it mean to be a child? What does think of your own children if you have them? Or you were once a child at one time? What do children act like? They're naive. They're gullible. They'll believe almost anything. We have jokes in our home about when they're little. They'll believe that a dragon lives in the attic. Or to go to sleep at night, they might hear that there's a bear outside the window. And they'll just believe that, no problem. They're gullible. They'll believe anything. And they're easily distracted by the slightest thing. You tell a a young infant or a toddler or or maybe even an older child to, to focus on something, and they're so easily distracted by whatever comes in front of them. Even when I was growing up, and still today, they say, you know, don't take candy from a stranger. Why? Because even candy was enough for little kids to get in the car with a stranger. That's how easily naive and distracted children can be. Children are impulsive. They do what feels good. They do what they like. They chase after what they want. And Paul says, don't act like that. Don't be a baby in your knowledge of the truth. Don't be okay with just saying, I don't know my Bible. I'm going to heaven. I've checked that box. Paul's saying exactly the opposite. We are no longer to be children. It's not right to continue to be a child in the faith. It's not right to not grow in our knowledge of Scripture. It's not right to not grow with the Holy Spirit's power in you. What about the gospel? Don't we need to grow in our knowledge of what Christ did for us? Isn't every Lord's Supper looking back to what Christ did for us? We should grow in that knowledge, not to be children, so that we believe everything the world throws at us. Now, sometimes we don't like the idea of being called a baby in the faith. That seems offensive. That's, that's what he's saying. The word here for child is, is an infant, really, a baby or a toddler. It comes up in other passages. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. He's saying you're such babies in the faith, and you shouldn't be. He's telling the Corinthians you shouldn't be, but you are. I can't even bring the meat of doctrine. I've got to give you your mother's milk, breast milk. For you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. I can't even tell you everything I need to tell you because you can't digest it. Little babies can't digest meat. I want to give you meat, but I'm just going to give you milk, the basics of the faith. Hebrews 5.13 For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Again, this imagery 
of there's milk in the word, yes, but there's meat there too. And we can't be satisfied with just baby's milk our whole life. But solid food is for the mature. And Hebrews 5 again, solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. When you can take in solid food, you're an adult in the faith. And then you can train and be trained on how to discern right from wrong, good from evil, not just in doctrine, but in lifestyle and practice, in the way that you live. You know that something is sinful because you have studied the word and you know what sin is. You know that something's righteous and good because you focused your mind on that and you've read and studied God's word. He continues. He describes what a child is like and, and says we're not to be these things. He says, children are tossed here and there by waves. That's an immature Christian that's easily tossed around. The, the picture in the ancient language here is of a ship on the ocean and it's just being thrown up and down by the waves, huge waves on the sea. So much so that it could topple over at any moment. That it could cause a shipwreck. And he's saying, we can't be like that. We can't be tossed here and there by waves. That's immaturity. It's like a child who's confused in their thinking, susceptible to the influence of others. You can tell them anything and they're going to believe in it. And baby Christians can easily fall prey to that. So much so that we're thrown around, if we're baby Christians, we're thrown around in our faith and it can, it can crash. It can crash. Not that we could ever lose our salvation. But we can go through some trials. We can go through some really hard times that were not needed if we had worked on growing up in the faith. Also, he uses another sea metaphor here. He says, and carried about. So not only does, does the wave toss you up and down, but the wind carries you about. This is a, the idea of a ship which loses its way on the ocean. The wind blows it off course. It was on course to go to a certain place, and strong winds came from every direction and knocked it off course. These are believers who not only suffer from being shaken up from the waves, uh, but also drift off course. They drift off course. It's just a small change in doctrine. It's just a small change in what you believe about this one verse. And five, ten years, twenty years later, completely off course. And you look back and say, what happened to the last five years? Yeah, God grew me a little bit, but wow, I went so off course. I follow this group. I follow this teaching. I follow this church. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. James 1 verse 6 uses similar language. Not the same words in Greek, but it says, In prayer a believer must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. When you pray to God, James says, you can't doubt. Because that's a mind that's thrown around. And now Paul uses the same type of imagery. As an immature Christian, it's so easy to throw you around. Anything can come at you and throw you back and forth. Well, what can immaturity do? Well, it can toss you around. It can take you places you didn't intend to go. And what's behind that? Well, it's every wind of doctrine. Every wind of doctrine. Not just one, but the idea is wind coming from all directions. It's all coming upon you. And if you're grounded in the faith, if, you're, if you've grown up, then you're less likely to be thrown around by the wind. But until you've grown, you're very susceptible. These are the waves that, that throw Christians around when they're not prepared, when they're not grounded, when they're not rooted, when they're not stable. 
There's a lack of stability. And it can push them off course. The idea here is a tendency or, or trend that causes one to move from a view or belief. False teaching. False teachers. Watered down teaching. Bad churches. Bad books. Bad Christian music. Bad Christian stations. Bad Christian movies. Commentator John Stott says that these people never seem to know their own mind or come to a settled conviction. Instead, their opinions tend to be those of the last preacher they heard or the last book they read, and they fall an easy prey to each new theological fad. Whatever's happening in that day, they chase after that. And oh, look, there's a new thing here. I'm going after that. And, and suddenly, these blogs are showing, showing me this new route. I know I should pick up this new book because everybody likes it. With no rooting in the faith, you're susceptible to all of that. But where do these false doctrines come from? Well, he goes on. He tells us. It's not as if God doesn't reveal exactly how this thing works. Where do these false doctrines come from? By the trickery of men. Trickery, the word is kubea. You can hear the word cube in there. It refers to dice. And this is dice playing with loaded dice. Men are coming with loaded dice and they're tricking you into playing their game where they win every time. It's the trickery of men. Evil men, evil women attempting to trick immature Christians. Who buys all those books out there? Who buys all that material that's false teaching? Well, sometimes it's unbelievers thinking they're Christians, but sometimes it's immature Christians. They're being tricked. The loaded dice is winning every time the house wins. These are men wanting to chase money, sometimes sexual immorality. They're chasing after their own desires, and they're using trickery to convince you that their views are right. I'll name just a few, but the list could go on and on. What kind of trickery of men are we susceptible to today? The prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says that you can be rich if you give enough. If you give enough to the church, then you'll be wealthy. You'll have exactly what you want. All you need is to make sure you're tithing to whatever ministry they say and make sure you have enough faith. Usually it's faith in them as a teacher, and you'll be rich. Now, if you've been in the faith for very long, and you've heard decent teaching and preaching, you often know that the prosperity gospel is not right. But there's a trickier version out there. It's called prosperity light. It's not so much that you'll be wealthy and a millionaire, but you'll have great business success, or great marital success. This is often found in seeker-friendly churches, some that are very close to us as far as physical distance. And they will tell you that God wants you to be successful. Not that you'll be a millionaire, but you can have the good things in life. Just look at Abraham. They'll often talk about Abraham. They'll often point you to the Proverbs about money, success. Also, the works-based gospel. If you just are good enough, this is the average American gospel. If you're just good enough, then maybe you'll get into heaven. God will judge you based on your good works versus your bad works. These things are, are things that Christians fall prey to. There's always these surveys that go around, and you're surprised that some of them basically deny the gospel. Evangelical Christians are asked questions, they deny the gospel. Why? Because of trickery of men. The New Age gospel where there's something mystical, something hidden, something new, some new chart that I can fill in, and it makes this nice little pentagram, and that'll tell me what kind of Christian I am. The easy believism gospel. 
easy believism. Just pray this prayer, walk this aisle, and you are saved. You're done. Check the, check the box. Come to church when you want. There's even a famous easy believism pastor this morning that said, it's Father's Day, men. You don't have to go to church. You can skip today. Go have a good time. It's a guilt-free day. Because you've checked the box. There's no reason to grow after that. No reason. The prophetic revelations gospel. Most famous book right now on the Christian market is Jesus Calling. Where a woman has heard revelations from Jesus. He's spoken directly to her. She records that in a book. And we get one almost every year from a family member for our kid's Christmas present or graduation. This is heresy. If you read the introduction, you'll see. Real popular the last few weeks is the social justice gospel. The social justice gospel. That our men, council member on the gospel coalition, who said he chooses skin color right now over unity in Christ. Skin colors first, he said. Even with an unbeliever, he has more unity of his own skin color than actual unity with Christians in the church, which denies everything we've been learning in Ephesians. The social justice gospel, what is that? Well, it's that really that the gospel of Christ that we read in Scripture isn't enough. That we need to go around separating people into groups. And that we need to do something other than preach the gospel to them. Not on an individual level, but a societal level. A societal level. By the way, we don't deny that there are injustices in the world. There are injustices in the world. But this is working through the social structure of society instead of through the gospel of Christ and through God's word. And it's seeking to remodel society into this utopia based on Marxism, based on critical race theory, based on manly philosophies. Well, I could go on. There's the nice gospel or if you're a Christian, just be nice and everything's fine. It's really popular with my age group. Just, just be a nice guy. Call yourself a Christian. Be a nice guy. Do nice things. And everything is good. There's evolution. There's the philosophy of men and on and on. That's the trickery of men. It's not just thinking. There's also patterns of sinful teaching. Like you can sin all you want as a Christian. And God's free grace will continue to forgive you. Just go on. It's called the free grace movement. Just go on and sin, and then you can look back to the cross, remind yourself that everything's good, and keep on sinning. The free grace movement. Oh, as a shepherd, I have to deal with many, many of these things. It's our job as elders to keep these things out of the church, to not put books like that in the bookstore, to not let things be taught like this. Trickery of men. But what's really behind it? He goes all the way down to the root. Where does this come from? By craftiness of deceitful scheming. By craftiness of deceitful scheming. Scheming is methodia in Greek. You can hear the, the English word method in there. A scheme is, is a method that's been pre-thought, that's been designed to trick. It's crafty. It's deceitful. The confusion of of under, underdeveloped believers by, by false teachers is no mere accident. It's not an accident that these people fall prey to false teachers. It's designed by someone to be that way. Go to Ephesians 6, verse 11. Paul's going to use this same Greek word for scheming. Put on the full armor of God. 
so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Same exact word here. The devil has schemes, and he's working through men to trick you. He's working through men to, to pull at your heartstrings. He's working through men to deceive you. And Paul's saying, watch out for that. Later he'll say, we need to put on the armor of God and Ephesians 6 for that. There's a strategy to this deception. Men just don't think of these things on their own. Many don't even realize that it's Satan behind it. They just think it's a good idea, something new they found in Scripture. Just this last week, somebody sent me an email, a fellow pastor. He said, we've got this missionary. And he says that to get to the real meaning of the New Testament, you've got to back translate it into Hebrew. Then you can really find out what Jesus said. By the way, if you back translate it into Hebrew, you get to decide what Hebrew words to use, which is a complete denial of the inerrancy of the New Testament, which was written in Greek, inspired by God to be written in Koine Greek. We have the scriptures right here. We don't have to go back or forward or any other direction into other languages. Subtle ways. Very subtle. It's crafty. Crafty means you're not always going to see it right away. Yeah, you can spot the prosperity preacher. But can you spot the one who says, don't worry about your sin? Or this one time, if you do it, it's no big deal. Can you spot the person that tells you, well, that's not in Scripture. I don't need to worry about that. That's not named in Scripture. That can't be a sin. That word's not in there. That English word's not in there. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4.3. This is nothing new. It's been there from the very beginning of the church. By the time the apostles were even going off the scenes, they were warning and warning and warning. What people want to hear is something completely different than what's actually the thing they need to hear. They need to hear the Bible. They need to hear sound doctrine. What do they want to hear? Something different. Something that pleases them. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Much easier to believe a myth than the truth. A myth tells me what I want to hear. A lie tells me what I want to hear, what I feel like believing. Sound doctrine says what God says. doesn't matter what you feel. That's what God says. Get in line with that. Get your emotions in line with Scripture. But it says they want to have their ears tickled. That's why Paul says preach the word. In season, out of season. Even if people don't like it, preach the word. Even if everyone leaves like they did to Jesus that one time, everyone just left because they couldn't take his teaching. And he turned to the twelve and said, are you going to leave too? And God had changed their hearts. And so they said, no, you have the words of eternal life. Jesus was the best preacher that ever existed, that will ever exist. And people still turned away from him. Why? Because he taught truth. And men and women, they don't want to hear truth sometimes. Go forward to 2 Peter. 2 Peter has a lot to say about false teachers. The whole book is really about a warning regarding false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at a few of these passages. 2 Peter 2, 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. He's writing to churches. He's writing to Christians. There are going to be false teachers come up among you. They're going to come in. They will secretly 
introduce destructive heresies. Even denying the master who bought them. They claim that the master, Christ, bought them and paid for their sin. And they're going to turn around and teach something completely the opposite. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. God will judge them for it. He will. Go to chapter 3, verse 17. This is a finishing paragraph to the letter. How does Peter want them to remember this letter? You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Be watchful. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Unprincipled. No doctrine. They have no definitive lines by which to follow. And fall from your own steadfastness. He says, I know you're steadfast. I know you're standing in the faith, but be careful. You have to constantly be on your guard, but grow. As opposed to falling, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's how he finishes his letter. Be on your guard. Watch out. This is why biblically qualified pastors, elders, are so important. It's so important. If you don't have people watching over you that know the Bible, that meet the qualifications in the Bible, then guess what's going to happen? False teaching is going to slip in. They don't even have to intend on it to. It just will. It just will. They're called to equip and build up the body. And if they're not doing that, then you'll be weak. And false teaching will come in. In Acts 20, Paul is on his way to Rome. He's being carried there by a ship that stops at multiple places. In Acts 20, he stops near Ephesus in Miletus, and he calls the elders to him. And he says, I know. Now, this is the same book that we're studying, the same church. Ephesians is written later. This is early on in the life of the church in Ephesus. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is a flock of sheep in Ephesus, Paul says, and elders you need to know that wolves are going to come and try to get those sheep. They're going to try to eat those sheep up. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Within the church, it's not just people sneaking in, but within the church, someone will get a bright idea, something new, something that's never been seen before in Scripture. And suddenly they'll start a group, and suddenly they'll try to divide. Therefore, he says, be on the alert. He commands the elders, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul says, I spent three years with you guys. I spent three years training you up. I spent three, three years maturing you. And as elders, you're supposed to be the, the most mature people in the church with regards to doctrine, with regards to teaching. Protect the flock. Protect the flock. That's why we want to equip the members here to resist all of these attacks, all of these winds of doctrine coming at you. Why so much Bible in the, in the church? Why, why so much teaching in the church? Because of this passage and all the ones we've looked at. Why so much doctrine? Why does your church have to be so doctrinal? Because it says, teach sound doctrine. An elder ought to be able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, who teach false doctrine. And every Christian ought to be coming up to that level as well. It's not why so much Bible, why not more Bible? Why not more Bible? 
Bible classes, book studies on Wednesday. We get out our Bibles. We look up verses. The, the book cites verses. Everything ought to have something scriptural, something doctrinal, at least behind it, even if it's a social gathering, even if we have a picnic as a church. Why are we there? Because we trust in Christ as our Savior. We believe in the gospel. Jonathan Edwards said, Christians need not and should not set any boundaries on their spiritual and gracious appetites. There's no boundaries to your growth. There really isn't. You think you can be exactly like Christ in this life? You can't. So just keep growing, keep growing, and you'll be stable. You'll be rooted. You'll be grounded. You won't be tossed around. The second exhortation in this passage, the second point, you need to have growth in Christ's likeness. So the negative is don't be children. The positive is grow to be like Christ. Children are thrown around. You want to be stable? Grow to be like Christ. Grow to be like Christ. That's in verses 15 and 16. And he's going to divide it up. The first verse, 15, is individually. And then 16 is corporately as a whole church. So how do you pursue growth in Christ individually? How do you yourself grow, he says? Speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Rather than being tossed around, rather than being unstable, believers should be growing up into Christ. As you speak the truth in love. Pride and ignorance go together. Pride and ignorance go together. If someone doesn't know the Bible and they're prideful, they're going to get annoyed at you when you try to teach them truth. When you try to bring scripture to them. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. God's word is truth. The Bible's going to be offensive. But you have to speak the truth in love. And he's really not even talking about evangelism. He's saying within the church. Within the church, people are not going to want to hear the Bible. And, and you have to still tell them the truth and do it in love. That's how we grow up. Sometimes when people first become reformed and they learn about the great doctrines of grace in the Bible, they get very agitated. Because no one's taught them that before. There's actually a name for it called the cage stage. And their goal then is to convert everybody else to that view. So they go around for a year, maybe two, some people, maybe longer. And they get angry. And they want to show everybody how God is sovereign over salvation, which is true, but they don't go about it with love. And so it's called the cage stage because they ought to be put in a cage for a year to calm down before they're ready to speak the truth in love. Because Christians have different viewpoints on doctrine, but there is truth in Scripture. We have to presented in love. The truth of Scripture has got to come in the right attitude, in the right manner, in the right way, and it's got to be done in love. The absolute objective truth of God's Word. What Jude 3 calls the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It doesn't change. It was once for all handed down. That's the truth. But let's look more of this concept of love. It's not speaking of the world's idea of love, falling in love, emotional feelings. No, it's speaking of sacrificial care, sacrificial love for someone. Might be your spouse, might be your children, your neighbors that are Christians, because of the context here is Christians, or within the church particularly, Paul says. 
Genuine Christ-like love. Christ showed us the way of love, the way he served, the way he cared for his disciples. He, he showed us the ultimate sacrifice of love on the cross. Even when he was resurrected, he restored Peter. He restored the disciples who all abandoned him. He's the example of love. And Paul has brought this up multiple times already in Ephesians. Now, there's a lot of mentions of love. We're just going to focus on where he's implying or commanding love of the Christian here. 117. And he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation in the knowledge of him. So, so we need to have a knowledge of Christ. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Not just your mind, but your heart. There needs to be a change in your heart. He's praying for a change of heart. That change of heart shows itself in love. 317, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. So that's two prayers about a change of heart. And in three, he says, look, that's a rooting and grounding in love. It's in real Christian love. It's the kind of thing we studied in 1 John. Christians ought to love the brethren. If they hate the brethren, then they're not even Christians. They ought to love the brethren. Go to chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, putting up with one another, all the annoyances that we have with one another, showing tolerance for one another in love. Why put up with your brother or sister in Christ when they sometimes annoy you? Because you love them. You love them. 4.15, he said, speak, speaking the truth in love. At the end of verse 16 in chapter 4, we're going to look at building up in love. Now go over to chapter 5, verse 2. He starts out, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He continues coming back to this idea of doing things in the realm of love. Because we love one another, we speak truth. Sometimes people think truth is unloving. That doctrine offends me. That doctrine hurts me. That's very hurtful. John MacArthur just preached on what's causing the riots. It's a great sermon, by the way. And he said it was the sinful heart of man that causes men to riot, steal. And people were saying that was very hurtful. That was very hurtful. He just went to Mark chapter 7 and said what comes out of the heart. That shows you what's truly in the heart, the actions that come out in a person's life. The truth of God might hurt, but we're still doing it in love. We care about somebody so much that we want to build them up in the truth. You're showing a complete lack of love when you let them believe every type of doctrine. You're visiting with a Christian family member, and they say, you know what? I believe in the prosperity gospel. You probably should say something to them out of love from the scriptures. They're going to hell if you don't. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The more mature you are, the more you're growing up in Christ, the more you're becoming like Christ, in love, speaking the truth, the more that you will be able to spot sin and spot bad theology and spot the good as well. It's not just moving away from every wind of doctrine, but also moving towards what is good. 
they say in, in banks that you learn what real money looks like. And you learn it so well that you can spot the counterfeit because it doesn't look like the real thing. You don't study the counterfeit, you study the real thing. In Christianity, we don't, we don't study so much the heresies. We study Christ, we study the Bible. If something comes in that doesn't match, then we can spot it more easily. And if something comes in that's good, somebody says something that's good and right and true, we can honor that. We can be thankful for that. Well, how are we to grow up? And what, in what direction are we to grow? We're, we're to be more like Christ. But Paul says, in all aspects. In all aspects, and to him who is the head, even Christ. We're to grow in every direction towards Christ. Just our thinking? No, everything. Our actions. Just our mind? No, also our heart. Not just our theology, but also our application. Not just one little pet peeve doctrine that we're really interested in, but all doctrine in the Scripture. If you like end times, you can't just focus on end times the rest of your life. If you like the doctrines of grace, you can't just study those the rest of your life. All of it. All aspects. Isn't that kind of hard? It is. Next verse is going to tell us how we're able to do that through the power of Christ. We need to be more like Christ in all ways. So we have to ask, how did he live? How did he speak? How did he love others? How did he show that love? How did he pray? How did he praise the Father? How did he comfort? How did he admonish? How did he teach? All of those things we need to grow up in. Not just what you like, not just what makes you feel good from Scripture, but the whole thing. Well, the next verse, he continues talking about growing up in Christ-likeness. But now he talks about corporately. Even Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body, that's the whole church, each local church should be growing together. Not all at the same level. We'll be at different levels. But we all help one another grow together. Now skip down to the end. The whole body, from whom the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In between there is a little parenthetical really telling us how it happens. But Christ is causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. He is the subject of that verb causes the growth. He is the one doing it. He is the one giving the power for it and working through all of us to build it up. It's being done by us, but it's through the power of Christ. He's the one who's planned it. He's the one that gives us the energy to do it. He gives us the gifting, the equipment, everything we need. How's this happening, though? It's being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. He's the one fitting it together. He's the one connecting it together. It's from him that the body grows. And he uses these two analogies. Being fitted together is back to an architectural term, a, a building analogy. To join together to form a, a coherent entity. The idea here is that a mason would cut the stone just right so it would fit with the next stone. There was no mortar. There was no cement or concrete. You had to cut the stone so that it would lay just right with the other stone, next to it, above it, below it. Christ is taking each believer and he's shaping and, and sharpening and giving the gifts so that that believer would fit with the rest of the believers in the church. And each one of you are being fit together perfectly to help one another. The second phrase, being held together and really the best translation is by every connection 
It's not really joint. We think too much in terms of a human joint there. It's a connection. It's a contact point. Meaning that every single person in the church must be in contact with others in the church on a regular basis. Not by calling or emailing necessarily, but just by being around each other. That builds the church. Christ takes the stones and he fits them together. Now they should be in contact with one another. And that contact helps hold up the building. What happens when you take a stone out? The building's weaker. The building's weaker. Now, God's the one building it, so ultimately it won't be weak. But we're to be around one another. Every contact is supplying this force that holds the building together through the power of Christ. That means we're united. We're united in the most vital things. Gifted teachers, gifted pastors are teaching, and we are being built up together. We're serving one another with our gifts, and we are united. We are together. We are one church. How exciting is that? I don't want to be in a church that divides over every single thing. I don't want to be in a church with cliques, different divisions. There's a problem every day, every week. That people are gossiping or people are splitting over silly things or there's heresy. We want to be in a place that's stable. We want to be a place that helps us to grow in Christ. We don't want church leaders that are confused on doctrine, that are scared to teach on truth. We don't want members that are scared of the Bible, that don't want to teach on truth to their family, to their loved ones. We want to all grow up. Do you think it's okay for you to grow, but not your spouse? Do you think it's okay for you to grow, but not the church? Let's focus more on one another. How can we serve one another? If you have a speaking gift, then use it. If you have a serving gift, then use it. The whole body, through the power of Christ, is producing the increase of the body. But the opposite is true as well. By not growing as a Christian, you're not just holding yourself back. You're holding others back because the whole body grows up together. The whole weakest link in the chain analogy. Let's become more stable. Let's excel still more. But let's grow in Christ's likeness. That's our goal. Amen? Lord, we bow before you this morning and we, we ask your help in this. We know that you've given us the power already. When we're saved, you unite us with the universal church. Then you bring us to a local church. And we have to work to keep that unity. We're humans. We're, we're, we still have indwelling sin. We still sometimes sin against others. Sometimes we sin by not serving at all and we, we don't use our gifting. Lord, bring us together. Build us strong. Help us to withstand whatever comes. Whatever the world is doing, let us stand firm against it. Whatever heretical teachers are throwing at us, let us be so rooted in Christ, so much like him that it just bounces off. It's nothing. We want to be more like our Savior. Grant us that wish. In Christ's name, amen.